Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Tuesday, April the 4th, 2023. It is currently 5.23 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. April the 4th, 2023. It's probably going to be a day that's going to be remembered in history. Maybe 10, 15, 20 years from now, there'll be kids in school going, what happened on April the 4th, 2023? Well, there was a former president who was indicted and arrested. Okay. So, and, and we watched at least the motorcade arrive at the courthouse and we saw the, uh, the former president walk in and then, and then, well, then, he he flew back to Florida where he's going to give a speech tonight. Yeah, it's it's been crazy to watch everything unfold today. A historic day, no matter what side of the political aisle you find yourself, it is a historic day. How it's all going to play out, people are going to speculate right now. If you turn on any of the news channels, it's it's wall-to-wall coverage just over and over and over. Talking about the indictment, the 34 accounts, uh, you know, is this, is this a strong case? It's a weak case. This is a, this is a political attack. It's the end of democracy. I mean, you, depending on which news station you listen to, you get a very different perspective, but that's what's happening on this April the 4th, 2023. And what I have attempted to do for a very long time now is try to warn Christians, try to keep Christians from being overcome by being overwhelmed, by being hijacked, by being drugged down into the political mud and fighting and arguing and debating and becoming pulled down so that we are overwhelmed with a political ideology. We stop thinking theologically. We start thinking politically. I, I don't want that to happen. I want us to maintain a theological perspective, a theological focus, not a political one. I mean, that's one of the reasons I call this podcast Theology Central. I'm trying to keep theology central. This is a day where we want theology to be central, not not politics, not I'm a Republican, I'm a Democrat, I'm a conser- conservative, I'm a liberal, I'm, I'm pro-Trump, I'm anti-Trump. I, what... None of that should matter right now. What should matter is that we are Christians, right? And that we want to look at things not from this political ideological perspective, but from a theological, from a biblical perspective. And so I could turn on the microphone and try to look at all of this more from a theological perspective, but I think what I'm going to attempt to do today and and this evening, I don't know how many live broadcasts I may do, who knows? We'll just see how tonight works itself out. Uh, Today wasn't as... It didn't go as planned, but hey, that, that's how life always happens. But I, I do want to do this. You, you could be sitting in front of the news, your, your television right now watching news. You could. And you're just hearing, you're just going to hear them say the same thing over and over. And depending on the news channel you tune into, they're either going to be, this is a horrible thing. It's an attack upon all of us. It's a political persecution. It's a witch hunt. And all of those on the other side, it's going to be like about time. Justice is being served. He's not above the law. You can sit there and get and pick your political team. Hear that team say everything you want to hear. You can find yourself getting frustrated and upset. You can be walking around thinking the country is five seconds away from, you know, coming undone. Or, or 
you can then say, okay, you, you can have your thoughts. You can have your opinions about that. You can have your concerns. But we must do what we can to constantly placing our mind on things above and constantly doing what we can to feed our mind more biblical and theological things so that that's the way we think first. Whenever you see anything going on in the world, and that's a question to ask yourself, is your first line of thinking, is your first line of reasoning, is it theological, is it biblical, is it spiritual, or is it, and I, and I don't want to just use the term worldly in a, in a completely like, I'm not saying worldly like it's a sinful way, but worldly as just in it's it's not theological, it's not biblical. Obviously, the worldly concept has a very negative, you know, it, it, it has a very negative connection. But I just want to say worldly in the sense that you're either looking at things spiritually or you're looking at things in a non-spiritual way. And I, and I really want you to just ask yourself, what do you have a tendency to do? Because so many times when, when, some, when something big like this happens, and, you know, um, tomorrow is Wednesday night. I don't know if I'll hear anyone at church talking about it. It may be Sunday before I really hear people talking about it. But sometimes I'll hear people at church discussing these kinds of issues. Sometimes I just sit back and listen and not really try. I don't try to get involved in the conversation. And sometimes you'll hear it's not a bit, it just, it's definitely more political. It's definitely more ideological. It's not more theological. And, and I just want to challenge Christians. Don't get pulled down into that because it's so easy to do. So we look it for, we just naturally don't think in a spiritual or theological way. That's just not our natural area of operating. Like our normal way of operating is very, worldly, fleshly, political, culturally, like we just, these are the ways we think emotionally. And we have to almost discipline ourselves to go, no, 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 no. I'm going to keep my mind focused on things spiritual so that that will become the more, the normal way I look at things. And it's not easy to do. We have to fight against it. And it's not always about just it's just about making sure that we're constantly putting spiritual things in front of us and before us. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, in this episode, I'm simply going to present a new book that I received an email about, uh, I don't know, probably a week ago. I'm a little behind on my emails. And so I just thought tonight would be a good night. Or good, it's afternoon here in West Texas, fast approaching early evening that this would be a good time to say, hey, guys, here's, hey, while, while all of this other craziness is going on, maybe consider getting a book that will get your mind off that stuff and get it focused on something theological or spiritual. Not that I'm going to necessarily agree with everything in this book, but sometimes it's the books I disagree with that get you, challenge you more to to really dig in and study. So I thought I would at least tell you about this and and and, and get your mind off everything else that's currently going on in the culture, all right? So my uh, iPad is absolutely blowing up with podcast notifications. Um, I, I can't even tell you. I, I think every podcast I subscribe to right now is just one episode after another about Trump, 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 Trump. So let, let's not do that. Let's do this. Let's take our attention to this subject. What do you think about this? Four stages in your pursuit of God. Now that... That sounds more interesting, doesn't it? Four stages in your pursuit of God. 
This is a part of a title of a book that is currently being sold by Moody Publishers. They say it's hot off the press, so I'm assuming this is a new release, or at least they're marketing it as a new release. Let me give you the full title of the book, and let's see what we can learn about it. And I have... I have a an excerpt of the book that we can read. There's just there's we'll, we'll just we'll just spend a little time with this. All right, here we go. Then the title of the entire book is this: Toward a more perfect faith. All right, now that 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 that's good. I mean, all of us want a more perfect faith, right? A more complete faith, a more mature faith. So toward a a more perfect faith. Four stages in your pursuit of God. Toward a more perfect faith, four stages in your pursuit of God. That's the entire title. You may want to write that down. Toward a more perfect faith, four stages in your pursuit of God. Right? Toward a more perfect faith, four stages in your pursuit of God. Now, I guess this is a based off material written by A.W. Tozer. Now, A.W. Tozer is very famous. You probably are familiar with A.W. Tozer. What's interesting is it it sounds like someone took material from A.W. Tozer, compiled it together to give us this book, Toward a More Perfect Faith, Four Stages in Your Pursuit of God. Let's read a little bit more about this and see. It's available in an ebook. It's available in paperback. Um, the paperback look like, looks like it will cost you about $12. The ebook will cost about $10. Um, here's the product description. Here's the product description. There has hardly ever been in my ministry a series of sermons to which I give, I, I have given more time, uh, more pain and more prayer than I did to this series from Philippians chapter three. So it sounds like someone took sermons that were preached by A.W. Tozer on Philippians 3. This is the way they describe it, that there's never been in their ministry a series of sermons which they gave more time, more pain, that's literally the word they use, more pain and more prayer than I did the series from Philippians 3. A.W. Tozer called these sermons the most important ever preached. Looking closely at Philippians 3, he describes the Christian as a modern-day Lazarus who hears the call to arise, but can't escape the grave clothes. In this new series of sermon transcriptions, Tozer shows us how to live with freedom. So it sounds like someone just took his sermons on Philippians 3. It's a new transcription, that's how they describe it, and they're going, it's going to supposedly help us that as a believer, we're like Lazarus. We've been called to come out of the tomb. We've come out of the tomb, but I can't get out of the grave clothes. We're stuck in the grave clothes. And that this is going to help us get out of the grave clothes so we can have a more perfect faith. And I guess there's four stages in coming out of the grave clothes so that we then can pursue God. Now, I know that's definitely taking the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead, and it sounds like very much turning it into an almost an allegory or just a major illustration. We could talk about the hermeneutical correctness of that or not. Um, It says, towards a deeper faith gives us Tozer sermons on the following. Here we go. Considering perfection in the Christian life, that that could be problematic, huh? Considering perfection in the Christian life, did, did Tozer think we could reach perfection? Raises lots of questions. 
Second, four kinds of Christians. Now, that would be interesting just to see how Tozer identifies four kinds of Christians. Next, discovering the loveliness of Jesus Christ. That, that, that could be good. The will of God and its relationship to our cross. Okay. The obstacle of self-trust. Living in his righteousness and more. So it doesn't give us all of this. I'm just reading what they offer as a description here. We are heirs to the king. And Tozer wants us to reclaim our heritage. Return again and again to Tozer's 12 sermons that will bring you into a deeper life of love and maturity in Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know if these 12 sermons on Philippians 3 by Tozer are widely available, easy to find. Maybe they are. I haven't done any research. But the book does sound interesting to give us these 12 sermons in what they refer to as a new series of sermon transcriptions. And, and again, people seem to think that these are like the greatest sermons ever preached on it. It would be good to possibly get them and then work on Philippians 3 ourselves. Maybe we can do something about this. We'll have to see. Um, they say read an excerpt. I'm going to click on it. Um, it says here, um, you can get the book from, they have it everywhere. You can get the book from Moody Publishers, Amazon, Apple Books, Barnes & Noble, Google Play, ChristianBook.com, Walmart, and Target. All right. Here's the contents and the book. Uh, uh, first, you have the introduction. Then one, one with God. All right. Stages of growth. Internals over externals. Discovering Christ himself. Superior intentions. Our active will, finding him alone, clouds that obstruct, obstacles in our way, knowing him fully, freedom to see, complete in him, and then a section of four sources. Those are the contents in the book, all right? They have here, this seems to be maybe the key verse for these sermons, that I may know him. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Now, the question is, I would ask from a theological hermeneutical perspective, something that you can think about. How do we experience the power of his resurrection? How do we experience the power of the resurrection? Do we experience the power of the resurrection here and now in our Christian life? Or do we experience the power of the resurrection? Well, when we will be glorified, when we will be brought into heaven with a new body, uh, the sinful nature is gone, no more pain, no more, no more tears, no more death, basically in our glorification. When do we truly know the power of the resurrection? And, and our spiritual, quote-unquote, resurrection or in our ultimate resurrection? How, how do we truly know that power? I, I think that's a, a good question. I think we know where the book is going to go. It's going to talk about we can know it here and now. And then it says, one with God. O-N-E-D. One with God. Here's, and I'm just going to read a little bit from this book. Again, we're looking at the book towards toward a more perfect faith. Four stages in your pursuit of God. A.W. Tozer. 
And then they basically take 12 sermons from Tozer and kind of give us a modern, I guess, a, um, a, a new transcription of these sermons. And supposedly these sermons are like the best ever. Let's just read a little bit here. Here we go. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 15, we find one of the most oft-quoted scriptural testimonies of a man who is desperately seeking after God. Yet while reading this passage, you will find that, that what seems to be a number of sharp contradictions in the writings of this man, uh, the Apostle Paul, that, it, that is, they only seem to be contradictory. So let, let me read this again. In Philippians 3, 7 through 15, we find one of the most, or the, uh, we find one of the most oft-quoted scriptural testimonies of a man who is desperately seeking after God. Yet, while reading the passage, you will find what seems to be a number of sharp contradictions in the writings of this man, the Apostle Paul. That is, they only seem to be contradictory. Indeed, there is much in the teaching of Jesus that sounds contradictory. This can be said as well in the writings of the old saints and their songs and their hymns. They're not contradictory, though. They only seem to be. All right? That, I think anyone who's ever read the Bible, you constantly are confronted with this. Well, wait a minute. This seems to say this. This seems to say this. This says this. This says this. This says this. This says this. What typically we do, as much as we... as. I'm going to I'm going to throw out a uh, a controversial comment here. I'm going to throw out a controversial comment before we go back and read a little bit more of this. I know we only read like a the first paragraph and I'm already stopping, but that's okay. Um we we all we almost need to do a podcast episode on this. I'm going to put forth a theory. Now I know not everyone's going to agree with this, but here's my theory. Everyone says the Bible appears to be contradictory. But it's not really contradictory. It only appears so. And if you'll do a little bit of study, you'll do a little bit of work, you can reconcile the apparent contradiction and it will all go away and it will all make sense. I'm not necessarily a believer of that concept anymore. I used to believe that concept. Now, when I say, uh, you'll ju- I'm not saying that there's a problem in the Bible. I believe the Bible is the inspired and errant word of God. But here's why I say I don't believe that anymore. Because here's what I think happens. Everyone says that they've, re- they've resolved the apparent contradiction. I'm like, oh no, there's no contradiction. But here's what they do. They take whatever the, wh- whatever the contradiction appears to be, because that means you're going to have two different competing ideas. Everyone chooses one of the sides in the apparent contradiction and say, we are going to interpret this possible contradiction by looking at all the scriptures that go this way. So we're going to, we're going to go with this view and we're going to interpret all the scriptures that seem to contradict this view in light of this view. In other words, this view, the, the first view, we'll say in this case, the first view, the first view will now become how we interpret all the other scriptures that seem to contradict it. So we'll make the contradiction go away by picking one side and saying, well, this one side, for example, we got some scriptures that seem to indicate works right? It seems to indicate works, that we're going to be judged according to our works. James says that we're not justified by grace alone, but by our works. We, we can go 
we, we, and those, those passages by works seem to contradict all the passages that seem to say, we're saved by grace, we're saved by grace, we're saved by faith. So what we do is we come along and go, okay, we're saved by grace alone through faith alone. That's the factual side. And all of these other scriptures will simply understand them in light of this truth. So that we pick a side and then we make the other contradictory verses just go away by saying, well, they have to be understood in light of this side, which is true. But then some will come along, oh, wait a minute, you picked the first side, I'm going to pick the second side. So someone else would come along, no, 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 I'm going to pick the side that seems to say that works are required for salvation, and I'm going to interpret all the verses that talk about grace in light of the verses about works. So I don't think we ever truly resolve the contradiction. We just pick the side that we, we that we go with that we think is right, and we just make the other ones basically fold into or we interpret them away based off the scriptures that we think are the ones that give us our viewpoint. Same thing with baptism. I can find all the scriptures that seem to indicate the mode of baptism, the candidates of baptism, but if I come up with any scripture that contradicts it, I'm just going to like, well, I'm going to interpret that in light of all of these other scriptures. I don't really reconcile the contradiction. I just make the contradiction go away by basically picking one side. Now, everybody's like, well, it doesn't contradict because we can explain it. You explain it by just picking a side and just making the others go away. That's not really reconciling the contradiction. But anyone who reads the Bible has to acknowledge the contradictory nature of much in Scripture where you're just like, well, wait a minute. I thought it was this way. That seemed, wait a minute. I thought, wait a minute. And, and you have to struggle with that. But I don't think we ever really reconcile them. We pick one side and I'm like, well, we're going to interpret these scriptures in light of the side I picked. That problem solved. That's how, that's how we work it. But it, I, I'm, I'm, I, I guarantee you, if the Bible wasn't so contradictory, at least to some level, we wouldn't have hundreds and thousands of different denominations and different interpretations. Because everyone's picking a side. And then they're going to say, no, 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 no. That, you're, you're quoting the wrong scripture. This, these, scriptures, uh, re the, these scriptures are the basis on how you should interpret yours. And they'll be like, no, 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 no. The scriptures we're holding to is the basis on how we should interpret the ones you're holding to. And it just goes back and forth, back and forth. So Tozer is like, well, they only appear to be contradictory. Well, they... <laughs> Put it this way, if they only appear to be contradictory, you think we could come to a resolution that would resolve it, right? He goes on to say, in, in the Philippians 3 passage, the man Paul tells us we are not yet perfect, but then says, as many as be perfect, be thus minded. This painting, this panting for perfection is the mood and temperature of the law and the Psalms and the prophets and the New Testament. All right. Um, in fact, I'm going to look. I think he's looking at verse 15. I think it's Philippians 3.15. Let me look at it. Let's look at it. Chapter 3. All right, uh, Philippians 3.15, let us therefore, as many as be perfect, 
be thus minded. And if anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. All right. Um, that's interesting. I'm going to read it from a different translation. I'm going to read it from a different translation. I, I, that's one of the things with sermons, when, when people just make a passing reference to a scripture and then just move on. Sometimes you, you go look at the scripture and like, well, wait a minute. Does it really say what you are using it for? All right. Philippians 3. Therefore, let all of us who are mature think this way. And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this also to you. All right. According to Tozer from this book, in the Philippians 3 passage, the man Paul tells us we are not yet perfect. This seems to imply that we are. Uh, then says as many as be perfect, but thus maybe he says we're not perfect earlier on in Philippians 3. Okay, yeah, here we go. Maybe verse 13. Okay, there we go. Let's go to verse 12. Uh, Philippians 3, 12. Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect. All right, so he says that we're not perfect. Okay, I agree. That passage, Philippians 3, 12 says we're not perfect. And verse 15, let us therefore as many as be perfect, be thus minded. So he seems to say we're not perfect, but then there's a discussion about being perfect. All right, I can, I can agree here. Then, then he goes on to say this. The panting for perfection is the mood and temperature of the law and Psalms and the prophets in the New Testament. It is also the temp temper of all the superior souls that have lived. It is the superior souls who have written our great books of devotion and composed our lofty, loftiest hymns. We, the unworthy uh, spiritual descendants of these great fathers, often sing these hymns and yet hardly know what we're singing. I would for like I would like for one of those great souls to speak to us at times in this study ahead not to add or take away from anything from the scriptures but to illustrate and teach and devotionally expound I am referring to the book The Cloud of Unknowing which was anonymously written by an English author 600 years ago The writer states the purpose of his book is to help God's children grow spiritually and to go on to be what God wound with and, and what he called wound with God. So Tozer is going to reference a book called The Cloud of Unknowing. The Cloud of Unknowing. Let's do a little research here. The Cloud of Unknowing. Let's see if I can get this to cut and copy and paste. I may not be able to. I won't, it won't let me do that. Let's do this really quick. Let's do a little work here. I don't think I'm familiar with this book. The Cloud. Oh, here it is. It was fast to find. The Cloud of Unknowing. The Cloud of Unknowing is an anonymous work of Christian mysticism written in Middle English in the later half of the 14th century. The text is a spiritual guide on contemplative prayer in the late Middle Ages. The underlying message of this work suggests that the way to know God is to abandon consideration of God's particular activities and attributes and be courageous enough to surrender one's mind, ego, to the realm of unknowing 
at which point one may begin to glimpse the nature of God. What in the world? Okay, let me read that again. All right. The cloud of unknowing is an anonymous work of Christian mysticism. Written in Middle English in the later half of the 14th century, the text is a spiritual guide on contemplative prayer in the late Middle Ages. The underlying message of the book suggests that the way to know God is to abandon consideration of God's particular activities and attributes. That's interesting because typically we would say the way to know God is to study his word, to study his attributes, to study his actions. And this seems to put forth the idea that that's not the way to know God. We should abandon consideration of his actions and his attributes. And we should be courageous enough to surrender our minds and ego to the realm of unknowing at which point one might begin to glimpse the nature of God. So we we surrender our minds to the realm of unknowing. (laughs) Someone in chat said, sound safe. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what this is. I am not familiar with it. Is anybody else, has anybody else ever heard of the cloud of unknowing? I have never heard of this, but obviously A.W. Tozer and his work on Philippians 3. Um, so use your imagination. That, that's a good idea. That's what it sounds like. You just abandon yourself to the unknowing. So then, so then what do you, what do you have? Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to know God by abandoning myself to the unknown. Yeah, I, I don't know how this works. This is, we're going to have to find this book, The Cloud of Unknowing. So, so now Tozer is leading us to the cloud of unknowing, but I'm a little concerned that he's going to use the cloud of unknowing to help us understand Philippians chapter three. And if we're abandoning ourselves to unknowing, then why would we study Philippians chapter three? I'm a little perplexed by this. I'm going to go back to what Tozer said, right? I'm going to save this. The cloud of unknowing. We, 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 we need to look for this book and see what we can find. Um, Yeah, we're going to have to do some work on that. I don't know when or how. All right, so let me go back here. So Tozer has decided that that there's apparent contradiction sometimes in Scripture and that in Philippians 3, we have this idea of being not yet perfect, but somehow being perfect. And he calls this the panting for perfection. And he says, this is the mood of the law, the Psalms, and the prophets, that there's these people panting after being perfect, desiring to be perfect, wanting to be perfect. Now, once again, this this seems to be telling me that Tozer is not going to lead us, at least that we're, we're, that this is a longing for perfection in practice. This is not a recognition of the perfection that we have in Christ because of an imputed righteousness. It seems the direction he wants to go. Um... He says, and it's the superior souls who basically pursue this kind of thing. Um, and he says, we, we, are, we are the unworthy spiritual descendants of these great people who wrote, um, you know, these great books on, I guess, pursuing perfection. And that we often sing hymns and we don't always know what we're singing. I would like for one of those great souls to speak to us at times in this study. So he's like, okay, I'm going to look for one of these great 
spiritual souls from the past to speak to us in our study in Philippians 3. And he says, I'm doing this not to add or take anything away from scripture, but to illustrate and teach and devotionally expound. And I am referring to the book, The Cloud of Unknowing, which was anonymously written by an English author 600 years ago. The writer states the purpose of his book is to help God's children grow spiritually and to go on to be what he called one with God. The book was written in pre-Elizabethan English, and it's older than Shakespeare by 200 years, giving us some rather quaint language. There are more recent translations in modernized language, but I prefer the original text. The old writer who says he wants Christians to begin to be one with God uh, made a little prayer, and uh, I would like to explain. So he's going to really now go into this book. Um, I don't know if I would want the original language or not. If it's if it's written 200 years before Shakespeare, written in pre-Elizabeth Elizabethan English, I I I I need I need the Texan version. I need I need the Texas version. Okay. Someone who from Texas had to do a translation. So I don't know. Well, we'll have to look for this. But he now wants us to go to the little prayer, whoever wrote the book. Here we go. In the beginning of his little book of devotion, the old saint prays, O God, unto whom all hearts be open, and to whom all will speaketh. Let us notice that in his, okay, so that's his prayer. O God, unto whom all hearts be opened, and unto whom all will speaketh. Then Tozer comes back. Let us notice that in his prayer, he says that before God, all hearts be opened. That is, God can see in, even if you close your heart or lock it, and have thrown away the key. All right, I don't have a problem with that. God does see, knows all things. He's all knowing, all right? Still, God can see in your heart uh, as though it was standing wide open. And he continues, now he continues on with a prayer, and I quote, unto whom all will speaketh. This is one of the doctrines of the Bible not heard of much today, but very, very strongly emphasized in the cloud of unknowing. That, he, that the will of a man's heart is prayer. That the will of a man's heart is prayer. The will of a man's heart is prayer. I've got to, we got to process that. All right. Well, we'll continue reading. Let's I see if he articulates or explains what he means. Prayer is the soul's sincere desire uttered or unexpressed. So prayer is whatever you, whatever you truly desire is what you are actually praying, whether you utter it or whether you simply never express it, but I don't know what I'm supposed to do with that. Because if, if I, if I go with what my sincere desires are, well, that, I don't know if I want to be praying all of those desires. I, I, oh, come on. Don't act like you're all spiritual. Probably you don't either. Okay. This is interesting. Let's see how they explain this. Uh, but all will speaketh, in other words, that you, that what, okay, but all will speaketh, in other words, 
What you will in your heart is eloquent, and God hears what you are willing, what you're determining to do, what you plan in your heart. Unknowing adds, unto whom no privy thing is hid, there is no secret thing is hid from God. Now, I, now I, I, I completely agree that whatever is inside of me is known by God. There's no question about that. God is omniscient. But I don't know if, any, if everything in me is a prayer. That's an interesting... Yeah, I've got to give that, I got to give that some thought. I got to give that some thought. All right. He goes on to say, um, the anonymous writer then says, I beseech thee so far. Okay, I'm going to read this again. The anonymous writer then says, I beseech thee so far to cleanse the intent of my heart with the unspeakable gift of thy grace that I may perfectly love thee and worthily praise thee. All right, now, I, I, you could already tell, well, I would probably get ready to say something, but I'm going to let Tozer continue. Tozer says, some will worry about him using the word perfect as though he's pushing towards spiritual perfection. I would like to quickly counter that question with another. Is there anything wrong with the old saint's prayer? Can you find any theological fault with this prayer? Oh God, fix my heart so that so I may perfectly love thee and worthily praise thee. If this sounds extreme and fanatical to you, I would question your understanding of God's total salvation offered to you through Jesus Christ. For the true child of God will say an amen to the desire to perfectly love God and worthily praise him. Hang on, before we go on. All right. I don't know if I would say there's anything wrong with the prayer. Look, I, I think we can all desire. We all, I think most Christians desire that we could be perfect, right? We could love God with a perfect love, that we could serve God with a perfect desire, that we could be holy as God. I mean, I think we desire that. The question is, it wouldn't be, is the prayer wrong to pray it? The, the question would be, do we really think that's going to occur in this life? Tozer seems to imply that if you don't, he seems to imply, I'm not saying he's explicitly saying it, he seems to be implying that if you don't believe or, or question that prayer, then you don't understand God's salvation because God's salvation seems, Tozer seems to imply, can make you perfect, can give you a perfect love. And I, and see, it, I will. When I'm glorified, but my sinful nature will remain. I am perfect in my position. Tozer doesn't seem to be going that direction. He goes on to say this. Well, and what's funny is those are the exact next words in the book. Now, Tozer's referring back to the, uh, the uh, cloud of unknowing, right? He's referring back to the cloud of unknowing. He goes on to say, there are four stages in the Christian life. I find four degrees and forms of Christian men's living and name them common, special, singular, and perfect. These are the four stages. So 
Tozer seems to agree that there's these four degrees of four stages in the Christian life, the common, the special, the singular, and the perfect. What an evangelist he would have made had he come around 600 years later, he would state, here's the way Christians are as I see them. The four stages are, or form is, okay, The fir- I'm sorry, the first stage or form is the common Christian. God knows what a mob we are. All right, I, okay, so that's just the common Christian. The first stage is just a common Christian. I guess that's that's what where most of us are. Um, then there's the special Christian, one who has moved on a little, and then followed thirdly by the singular Christian. And then the final stage he lists is the perfect Christian. He then explains very carefully that the first three stages, common, special, and singular, may be commenced and ended in this life. The fourth stage, though, may be grace, may by grace be begun here, but it shall ever last without end in the bliss of heaven. So the first three stages can basically start and stop here. It's that fourth one that it may begin here, but it's the one that will last throughout the bliss of heaven. It will last forever. I don't know if we can accomplish it, but it seems like we can at least start it, it sounds like. He goes, I would like to make it clear that neither I nor the writer of the cloud of unknowing are perfectionist to the point where we walk about with a a benign St. Francis smile saying we're perfect. You will always find, though there's a place to go on into deeper spiritual maturity, yet we both hold to the belief that you can at least enter into the beginning of spiritual perfection or completeness. So he doesn't believe in what he calls perfectionist, but that we can somehow begin, we can enter into the beginning of spiritual perfection or completeness. So I guess we can't be perfect, but we can begin spiritual perfection or completeness. I don't know exactly how he's distinguishing these, but all right, let's see how Tozer, what he offers here. Now, again, this is supposed to be a sermon on Philippians 3, but all right, (laughs) Along with this opening explanation, I would like to offer a, uh, I would like to offer something that is uh, something that is taken for granted that provides a basis upon which we may proceed. All right, he's going to put forth an idea. Is that the belief that most present day Christians live beneath themselves and live sub-Christian lives. That's that's his kind of his hypothesis, is that most Christians at the time A.W. Tozer was writing believed that most Christians live beneath themselves and live a sub-Christian life. Most modern Christians are not joyful persons because they are not holy persons. They are not holy because they are not filled with the Holy Spirit. Oh boy, here we go. They're not filled with the Holy Spirit because they are not separated persons. The spirit cannot fill whom he cannot separate. Whom he cannot fill, he cannot make holy. And whom he cannot make holy, he cannot make happy. 
All right, so if you're a Christian and you're not happy and you're not holy, it's because you're not separated, because if you could be separated and you're not filled with the Holy Spirit. So I don't know what it means not to be filled. So I guess you can have the Spirit, you just don't have all the Spirit. I don't know. Now it becomes really convoluted, but it seems like, hey, if you're not happy, it's because you're not holy, and you're not holy because you're not separated, because if you're separated, you would have the Holy Spirit, then you would be these things. So all we need to do is be separated. Then we can get the full fullness of the Holy Spirit. Then we can be happy. Then we can be holy. So it's a simple thing. And, and we, we're, we're the driving force behind it, not God. Because God can't make us separated without, without our help. God can't make us holy without our help. All right. It says, he goes on to say this, stated differently. Even though the modern Christian has been born again, having accepted Christ, often he's not a joyful person because he's not a holy person. And he's not a holy person because he's not filled with the Holy Spirit. The only Holy Spirit there is. He's not filled with the Holy Spirit because he's not separated from the world. God cannot fill what he cannot separate and he cannot make holy what he cannot fill. He cannot make joyful what he cannot make holy. Furthermore, um, the modern Christian is not Christ-like. That is, he has not been one with Christ. The proof of this lies in his bad dispositional flaws found today among the children of God. If I didn't have prophetic uh, vision to set down the years like the prophets in the 11th chapter of Hebrews who fell asleep not having seen the fulfillment of the promise, I would be deeply despondent. The reality is I have preached for years to some people who still have bad dispositional flaws. In addition to that, they have moral weakness, frequent defeats, and dulled understanding. All right, so he, here's, okay, I see what's happening here. All right, now I can kind of articulate this. Here's what Tozer is doing. He's grown frustrated. He's He's grown discouraged. He's grown a little depressed because he's been preaching to people for years and those people still has as he recall as he refers to them uh, as dis, uh, dispositional flaws there's something there's flaws in their disposition they have moral weakness they have frequent defeat and they and they don't really understand they have a dull understanding and tozer's like I'm sick and tired of this I'm tired of this. Why Why are people still? I know the problem. I know the problem. They're not full of the Holy Spirit. Why are they not full of the Holy Spirit? Because they're not separated. And if they're not separated, God cannot make them happy and God cannot make them holy because he can only do that with the Holy Spirit. So they have to separate themselves so they'll get the Holy Spirit. Once they get the Holy Spirit, then they'll be happy. Then they'll be holy. And all of our problems are solved. Now, Christians for 2,000 years have been constantly bothered and frustrated with the lack of godliness and holiness in the life of professing believers. And so ever, someone's always trying to come up with a solution. Well, some would say, they're not saved. They just throw them all out. They're not saved. Others will say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's four stages in the Christian life. See, these are the common Christians. Some of them get to the, you know, the next level, but none, almost none get to the perfect level. So he's trying to explain it away. Or he's trying to give it an explanation to it. 
He goes, they, speaking of most Christians, they live outside the will of God and live beneath the scriptures to a great degree and thus outside the will of God. This is his, his basically hypothesis and the reason for this study. This substandard condition is not too unfamiliar in the Bible. Remember what was written about Israel, God's people in the Old Testament, and often repeated in the New. Though the children of Israel should be as numerous as the sands by the seashore, yet but a remnant shall be saved. Looked at the fifth chapter of Hebrews, where the writer says, Of whom we have many things to say, and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. For when the time ye ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again what which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are full of age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Now, once again, so what he wants to say, see, this is this kind of problem has been going on in Israel. It's even in the New Testament. Yeah, Tozer, I wonder why it's constantly been a problem. It was a problem in biblical times. It was a problem in the early church. It was pro- it was a problem in in the middle in the middle and uh, basically the 1400s, 1500s, 1600s. You know that the 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 middle age right there that 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 time there where the church was going through a major transition. It was still the ma- major issues, still the, the the still major problems. And then you go all the way into the 1800s, 1900s. It doesn't matter. 2000s. It's the same story. You've got people who claim to be Christians who have bad dispositions. They are moral, morally weak. They fall into sin. They're spiritually dull in their understanding. They can't be given meat because they're, they're not even having a hard time even with milk. And it's always been a problem. He goes on to quote, therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, of the doctrine of baptisms and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this will we do if God permit. Our Lord also said the love of many would wax cold for in the book of Revelation and the seven letters, the church is found in chapters two and three. We have a certain conditions laid out before us. These are churches that are functioning as churches, but have lost their first love and are cold and are very much wrong with them and, and have very much wrong with them spiritually. Yeah, the seven churches, Church of Corinth, Church of Galatia, all the churches had problems. Why do Christians not can't embrace this reality? He goes, therefore, I have based the necessity for this study with the understanding that most present day Christians live sub Christian lives. Unless you agree with my theory, this may just be a waste of each other's time and a wasted effort on my part. This study has cost me a tremendous amount of brain power and nervous energy and a considerable spiritual uh, preparation. It is one of the heaviest things I know to realize this teaching as well as the Apostle Paul's text in Philippians 3 can mean nothing to some readers. In Matthew 13, 10 and following, we read about the disciples who came and said unto Jesus, why speakest thou unto them in parables? He answered and said unto them, because it is given unto you to know the mysteries for the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. For whosoever hath 
to him shall be given and he shall have more in abundance. But whoever hath not from him, it shall be taken away even what that he hath. Therefore speak I to them in parables because they seeing, see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. That very plainly states that there were people who could not accept the teachings of Jesus. And so in order that he might speak to the ones who could hear, he disguised his teaching a little bit. Now, I don't mean he was deceiving, but he was fixing it with a kind of a spiritual code. So the ones who could get it, got it, and the others didn't get it. It was though he was actually keeping it back from certain ones. We read the same thing by the man Paul in the third chapter of 1 Corinthians. He said, I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto you were not able to bear it. Neither yet now are ye able, for ye are yet carnal. For where there is among you envying, strife, divisions, are you not carnal and walk as men? For while one saith, I'm of Apollo, another, I'm of Apollos, are you not carnal? Who then is Paul and who is Apollos? But ministers to whom ye believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 5. He had to hold back certain truths because they could not receive it. The anonymous writer of the cloud of unknowing admonishes everyone and to whose hand his little book fell. He said, I charge thee and I beseech thee in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost that thou neither read this book nor write it nor speak it nor suffer it to be read, written or spoken of or to any except it be such as one have by true will and by one of the whole intent purposed him to be a perfect follower of Christ, not only in active living, but in the farthest point of contemplative living, possibly by grace, to become in this present life of a perfect soul, yet in a mortal body. Right? So what he is saying is that the cloud of unknowing, the author was like, hey, 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 just don't give this book to anybody. Don't, don't, don't even speak about this book to anyone. You've got to, you've got to find the right kind of people. And then Tozer comes back and says this, What he is saying is I don't want anybody bothering around with this unless you have made up your mind and have a true will and a whole intent and purpose in your hearts to be a perfect follower of Christ. Oh, believing friend, what has happened to us when we judge the intent of a man like this over against our nibblings in this modern time when we must pull the preaching of the word down to the level of the dumbest and most spiritually obtuse? Why is it that we don't preach to the ones who's really thirsting after God, but rather to the most commonest of Christians who barely hangs on. I hear the cloud of unknowing say to me, Tozer, by the grace of God and in the power of the Trinity, I beseech you, don't you preach this unless people are determined in their hearts to be perfect or complete followers of Christ and the sovereignest point of living possible by the grace in this life. All right, now, let me see here how long. Okay. We're, we're, I don't know if we can finish this, but all right, let me go back up here. Um, let me go back here. All right. Yeah, I'll stop right here. Well, I won't, I won't completely stop. I'm going to finish this. So what Tozer is saying is like, hey, hey, I don't want to preach this 
And I and I, and I do find it interesting. There's there's at least a part there that I kind of agree with. I do agree that so many times in the church, they feel like they have to dumb it down and dumb it down and dumb it down and dumb it down and dumb it down to the to like the lowest common denominator. And I, you know, I oppose that in the church. I'm like, no, we're going to preach all the doctrine, all the theology, all the church history. And my job as a teacher is if someone is struggling, is to do everything I can to pull them up. I'm not going to dumb it down. I'm just going to bring in and say, here's a ladder. Let's start climbing together until we can get to where we need to go. I don't like the church dumbing it down. I do agree with Tozer. That's a problem. I don't know if I'm uh, into the idea that I say, hey, unless you are really committed this is sermon is not for you. I don't know if I am. Uh, I don't know if I am uh, in agreement with that. But but you you can draw your own conclusions. He goes on to say this. When I hear the lyrics of a song that states his blood made us worthy, something leaps up in my ear, causing me to say, "God, that's my hope. Not me, but his blood has made us worthy." I hope by the blood of Jesus that we may be worthy to listen and by the intent of our heart perfectly to love God and worthwhile to praise him. May, may, we, be, may we by grace follow him in the most sovereignest point possible in this life and get something out of this study. Well, I would just say his blood makes us worthy. Tozer almost wants to look at it that his blood puts us in a position so that we can become worthy. No, by his blood, we're made worthy. No, no matter what we do or don't do, because all of his blood washes away all of my sins and then his imputed righteousness. But all right, uh, let's continue. The ancient writer goes on to mention he rejects certain people. He clearly states that there are people he would consider rejects, those who disqualify themselves as potential readers. He states that among those he doesn't want to hear or read his book are the fleshly janglers, that is, idle talkers or people that just chatter all the time. Nor does he want open praisers and blamers of themselves and others to read his words. He also calls out the tellers of trifles, um, basically a gossip that God knows them. He doesn't want that the, 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 the person who wrote The Cloud of Unknowing, those were the kinds of people he didn't want reading his book. O God, to whom no privy thing is hid, and all will speaketh and hearts are open, thou knowest there are th- where the gossipers are, the, gosp- the gossipers and the tattlers of tales, he said. You leave my book alone, you tell tattlers, and all manner of pinchers, he says. A pincher is the fellow who tithes, but whose hand holds onto his money as long as he can and pinches his money. Wow. So I guess he doesn't want people who aren't generous with their money to read his book. The old writer says, for my intent was never to write such things unto them. Therefore, I would that they meddle not therewith, neither they nor any of their curious, lettered, or unlearned men. If you're just a curious person in uh, in this deeper spiritual life teaching, whether you're ignorant or a scholar, it doesn't make any difference. He says, I don't want any of those people hearing what I have to say. Wow. Now, whoever wrote The Cloud of Unknowing was very picky, okay? He only had certain people he wanted to read his book. Tozer says, I have to contradict The Cloud of Unknowing on this point. 
I am not willing to withhold the open secret of spiritual power from those who can take it just because there are those who cannot. I'm not going to withhold the open secret of the victorious life from those who can understand it because there are some persons or there are some present who cannot understand it. Jesus Christ told parables and disguised his teaching in order that the spiritual eyes might see and so others will not see nor hear or understand. And so through the course of this book, I have no doubt that there will be a sorting out. There will be a sorting out with some willing to choose to go on in their devotion uh, to Jesus Christ. Some will go from stage to stage. Others will be content to remain a common Christian as we have in such great number in our day. Fundamentalism has unfortunately produced a whole herd of flock of common Christians in our day. Further into our study, I will discuss what it means to become a special Christian and define what kind of Christian that is, and then go on to discuss what it means to be a singular Christian. Please don't think I'm teaching about four works of grace. No one should think I've heard of two works of grace and uh, even some teaching teach three, but Tozer's got four. No, I'm just talking about four stages on the path toward spiritual perfection or maturity. Alongside our anchor teaching of Philippians 3, I want to also follow this man who says a man can be a common Christian in his life. He also can be a special Christian in his life, and he can also even go on until he becomes a singular, a singular, singularly spiritual in his life. It is my prayer to also show it is possible for him to finish those three stages at the stage of perfection and then move into a stage which you can only begin here, but you will never end, as the old writer says, till the bliss of heaven. This is the teaching of the victorious Christian life and the focus of my teaching. As I continue, I'm convinced there will be a sorting out. I could only wish this sorting out might come in religious circles. We've watered each other down so much until the solution is now so weak that if it contained poison, it wouldn't kill you. And if it were medicine, it wouldn't cure you. It's just a weak solution. This book is for those who want to go on into the fullest measure, the sovereignest point of living possible by grace to attain in this present life while still living in this mortal body. So basically, as I stated, Tozer thinks the problem is the church at that time had been so dumbed down, watered down. They were weak. They kept sinning. They weren't holy. They had bad dispositions. And he's found the secret to the victorious life. And so if we'll follow his, his pattern, we can get to that final stage, that stage of perfection that will last throughout all eternity. And we can somehow reach this in our mortal body. He goes on to say, I'm almost done. He goes on to say, um, is it fanatical to want to go on until you can perfectly love God, until you can perfectly praise God and thus live in the will of God so you're living in heaven while you're living on earth? He says, is it fanatical to want that? It may not be fanatical to want that, but if you think you can ever, ever, ever in this life perfectly love God, perfectly praise God, and perfectly live in the will of God, then you're crazy. He basically calls it, you're living in heaven while you're living on earth. No, he says, it's, if that is fanaticism, then it is, then it is the fanaticism of the law. So, well, oh boy, Tozer, the law is not meant to get us to perfection in this life. 
The law is to demonstrate our lack of perfection in this life so that we will be dependent upon God's grace, mercy, and his imputed righteousness. See, Tozer thinks, hey, it's not fanaticism to want it because we can do it. We can obtain it if we'll just follow, I guess, the principles that he has discovered. Uh, he goes, it, it is the fanaticism of the Psalms. It's the fanaticism of the prophets and, and of the New Testament. It's the fanaticism that gave us Methodism. It's the fanaticism that gave us the Salvation Army. It's the fanaticism that caused the Christian and Missionary Alliance uh, Missionary Society to be born. It's the fanaticism that gave us the Mor- Moravians. It's the fanaticism that gave us the friends of God who held close to the truth. It's the fanaticism that caused the birth of the Reformation. But please note, he, ne, ne, look at those groups. Methodism? Yeah, how's the Methodist church turned out, Tozer? The Salvation Army? What does that turn? Go through any of those groups and see how they turned out. No matter how much they desired perfection or to be perfect or to be holy, those all demonstrated once again, sin, 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 failure, and all of the things that you are upset about. He goes, let us remember those men who in times past were like worms in the soil, softening it up, getting it ready for the harvest. Unseen, but working in little groups here and there were holy people that would not surrender themselves to the common ways of the world. Just as the angel worms and the other worms found in the soil by their going through it and uh, by going through it and going through it constantly kept the soil, keep the soil soft and making it so that when it rains, the water can moisten it as necessary. Let me further illustrate by saying the Psalms, I'm sorry, Let me further illustrate by saying the plain saints, the simple saints, were not heard of much, but lived lives of spiritual perfection. That is at least the beginning of spiritual perfection in this life. They salted down the nations like Germany and Holland and even the Latin countries until the Reformation came. They created soft soil in which to plant the seed. Martin Luther could have never done what he did had there not been those before him. There are those like him who had gone up and down the land preaching such kind of living as this. Some reading this will go on and unfortunately some will not. Some will come to their Kadesh Barnea and turn back. When the people of Israel came to Kadesh Barnea, there were some who said, let's go on over. But Israel as a whole said, no, we will not go over. And they didn't. So they went back, not knowing they were sentencing themselves to 40 years of aimless wandering in the desert and sands of wilderness. They didn't know that they were taking a test. God didn't say, now stand up, everybody, take a breath. We're going to be, we're going to have a test. He simply let them make their own test and they flunked it. Right. We all flunk it. That, that's what I guess Tozer doesn't understand. And this world of sin and flesh and devils, it's frightening and terrible thing that about 80 to 90% of the people that God puts to the test flunk that test, but thankfully not all. Arise, O sleeper, and call upon thy God. So if it be that God will think upon us, I may say for some it will be an unconscious testing. When we urge you forward, the question is, what is your response? Will you go this far with me? Will you agree that most Christians today live sub-Christian lives? Do you agree that most Christians are not joyful Christians? They're not joyful Christians because they're not spiritual Christians and therefore not holy Christians? If your concept of Christianity is one of part play, part social fun, and part religion, 
you won't be able to hear or understand me at all. You will, you may receive these words, but you will never really understand what I'm saying. On the other hand, if you can, if your concept of Christianity contains the belief that this life is a battlefield and this world and this life is a preparation for something greater, if you accept the cross of Jesus Christ as your symbol, which you must carry and die on it and rise and live above it, then we'll move along and we'll have a good journey together. I share with you now a little motto from the cloud of unknowing. It is this, look now forwards and let be backwards. That was the ancient writer's way of repeating what the Apostle Paul said. Get rid of that backward path. Don't look back, but look now forward. If you will take this as your motto, look now forwards and let be backwards and not worry about the past and commit to move forward through the successive stages, you will have a spiritual experience that the old brethren called oneness with Christ. To be one with Christ is what my own heart longs for, and I trust yours does as well. That's a lot. That is from the book. Towards a more perfect path, four stages in the pursuit of God. It's a, they compiled, it looks like 12 sermons by A.W. Tozer. That's an excerpt from the book that's free all online. You can go find it anywhere and read all of it. It's about, that's about 17 pages we went through. Let me see, is it a total of 17 pages that we went through? Oh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, It says page 17. I think it's about five pages we read. Uh, from the book. And that's, I guess, chapter one, one with God. Tozer believes basically 80 to 90% of Christians fail the test. 80 to 90% of Christians are not going through the stages. 80 to 90% of Christians are living there in that common l- level and they are never going to be holy. They're never going to be happy. And they're, they're just, they're the problem. Now he says 80 to 90%. That's insane. but he supposedly has the answer. Now, I would challenge you to get a copy of this book only because it's put out by Moody Publishing, pretty well-known publishing publisher in the world of Christianity, Moody Bible Institute, Moody Radio. I mean, they, they're, they're, they have name recognition in Christianity. I don't think this book is, I don't think this book is going to catch on and be anything big, but you want to see where some of these, first, we have a major that's why we've been doing this series on law and gospel. He does, he obliterates the distinction between law and gospel. He seems to say that God, the God's law is what calls us to perfection and, and then we can do it instead of seeing God's law is calling us to perfection because we can't do it. Um, there, there's a million problems in the book, a million problems. Um, but we want to see how he articulates it and work through it. And so we may have to do a little bit of that, right? So once again, I'm sorry I took an hour working through that, but that's what I do, I guess. All right. The name of the book, Toward a More Perfect Faith, Four Stages in Your Pursuit of God. Four Stages in Your Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer. You can find it on Amazon, Walmart, Target, Barnes & Noble, Apple Books, Moody Publishers, Amazon, Google Play, ChristianBook.com, pretty much anywhere you get a book. I'm assuming, let me go to Amazon really quick. 
you can get it for a Kindle for $10. So I may be purchasing it for my Kindle here in just a minute. It was pu- uh, it looks like it was published on March the 7th, or at least the paperback version, March the 7th, 2023. So it's not even a month old. Wow. I don't know what to say. There's some major problems with it, but it's such the, it fits right into the wheelhouse of how many Christians think that basically we can accomplish all of this stuff. So you can let me know what you think. Um, Yeah, it's 192 pages long. Yeah, I, I got some issues here. I got some serious issues here. All right, I'll stop. You can email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. All right, I'm going to stop for now. Thanks for listening. I love to get your feedback on it. I, I, oh, and just, oh, just so that we know, that just so that we know. The, uh, the book that he references, the book that to- Tozer references and referenced f- throughout that entire first chapter is the book called The Cloud of Unknowing. And we see here, The Cloud of Unknowing. And if you go to Amazon, go to Amazon, The Cloud of Unknowing. You can get that, wait, no, buy anonymous, okay. Um, you, you, can get a co- you can get a copy of it for 99 cents on your Kindle. There's all kinds of uh, different versions of it. I don't know which one I would want to get, but um, yeah. The Cloud of Unknowing. Now, this is given a name. So did, did they discover the name of, of the author? Oh, that's, is that the editor? No, that's the author. They, they're given the name as Evelyn Underhill. That can't be the same book. Hmm. I'm going to have to do a little work. Okay, here, here's one that says The Cloud of Unknowing um, by Unknown Mystic, all right? That, that, to me, would be the more accurate one. Yeah, there's a lot of different versions. We'd have to do a little bit of work on this to see which one we, we got here. And I definitely... Yeah, that's weird. They have all these with different names. So I, we would have to do a little bit of work. The Cloud of Unknowing, we'll have to look at that. But that's the book that Tozer obviously was greatly influenced by. So it is good that he acknowledged his influence. So we can go back to The Cloud of Unknowing, see kind of where these ideas originated, and then see how they show up in Tozer. And A.W. Tozer is very well respected in the evangelical world. So you can kind of... You got Christian mysticism that Tozer becomes now the direct promoter of a Christian Christian mystical idea that definitely then would have entered into the evangelical world. I love I love tracing it that way. 
So hopefully uh, we'll, we'll all do some work on it together and see what we can find. All right. If you, if you figure out which copy of the book, The Cloud of Unknowing is the correct copy on Amazon, email me and let me know because I, it's weird. Like The Cloud of Unknowing by William Johnston. Okay, that can't be the same one. The Cloud of Unknowing by Evelyn Underhill. That can't be the right one. Because it's supposed to be unknown. I would have to go to, we're going to have to see if they discover the name of the author. Like, yeah, we're going to have to do a little work there. All right. Thanks for listening. Newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. All right. Everyone have a great day. God bless.